You may be seated. Uh, Rezka Jacks is staying put this morning. It's uh, the fifth Sunday, and so every fifth Sunday our res kids stay in here with us uh, because I think it's important that at least quarterly they're uh, in here for the whole service. And if they start squirming, that's okay. Um, that's okay. That's their, that's their cries of worship with us. Ushers, go ahead and come forward. Um, I'm honestly really happy to see all of you because last night um, that we had a wedding out of town of a member. Some of our staff people are there. My family's there. Uh, all kinds of people are there. And so I was like, man, that's like a lot of people. And then I kept going down the list. I was like, oh, but so-and-so will be there. And I would text them like, I'm out of town. And so over like 30-some people are out of town. And when you're a church of like between 80 and like 110, like 30 people's a lot. So I was like, it's gonna, I'm going to get up there tomorrow. And there's going to be no one there. Like it's going to be completely empty. And so I'm glad that's not the case. We've had an exciting morning already. We had our final uh, installment of our membership class. Um, and so that was a good time. Uh, something went wrong with the toilet upstairs, so that was also a good time. But we're going to end strong today uh, with a baptism. And so uh, I'm really, really excited about that. Uh, the toilet and the baptism are not connected, by the way. So the issues are separate in separate universes. Uh, today's sermon text is Mark chapter 11, verses uh, 12 to 26. Oh, you, you can probably add projector problems onto that. Uh, so that's cool. Good, good, good. Um, in Mark 11, chapter, or chapter 11, sorry, verses 12 through 26, uh, we see sort of a uh, sandwich, if you will. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are all sort of on one theme. Then verses 15 through 19 go to another theme. And then verses 20 through the rest of the passage go back to the theme that uh, we talked about before. So if you're thinking about that metaphor of a sandwich today, you've got our um, fig tree stuff we'll talk about in just a moment. You've got your fig tree stuff here. Then you've got your... Um, activity in the temple right in the middle, and then below that, again, you've got some more activity uh, dealing with the fig tree. And so the structure is going to help us understand the meaning, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, But as we approach our text, some things to think about. Uh, Have you ever sort of seen something that just looks delicious, right? You see it, and it looks like it's going to taste incredible, um, you know, you're, you're at like a bakery or a pastry shop. This happens to me whenever we're in Europe for some reason. Every time I go, they, they get me. Man, I'm Europeans. They don't know how to put sugar in stuff. I don't know what it is. I, I, I don't get it. And so I'll be looking at this um, case of sweets, and it'll look really, really good. And I'll be like, I'll take um, that and that, and, and he'll have that. He's like, I didn't want that. I'm like, I want that. And he'll have that. And so we get these sweets in front of us, and they look so, so good, and I take a bite of it, and it's like disgusting. And I'm like, this just isn't very good. I don't know if that's ever happening. You saw something that looked delicious, but it just wasn't. Or um, maybe you've bought something that, that looked awesome in pictures or on the internet. Maybe it was a, a vacation, or maybe you were uh, house hunting, and so you're online, and you're on, um, what, Trulia and Zillow and all these sites, and you're, you're looking at these photos of houses that you're going to rent or buy, and they look great uh, digitally and virtually, and then you get there, and it's like, how is this even the same house? Like, they must be incredible photographers to be able to, to make such a terrible thing look so great. Now, let's take that idea, and let's make it a little bit more spiritual. Have you uh, ever met someone who wanted you to think they were holy and then you got to know them, 
and determined that they were, in fact, not holy at all. Maybe um, you, like me, haven't just met that person. Maybe you've been that person. In our text this morning, Jesus will rebuke and ultimately condemn Israel and their idolatrous worship. The big idea of our text today is that Jesus condemns that which looks right on the outside but is rotten on the inside. Jesus condemns that which looks right on the outside but is rotten on the inside. So let's jump right in in verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. This and, the, and his disciples heard it. Now, for just one moment, before we dig into this text and what's going to follow, look with me back in verse 11. Jesus has um, just come into town for the Passion Week, for the most significant week in his life, and by extension, the most significant week of human history that on Good Friday will culminate with his being crucified, and then on Resurrection Sunday, as we celebrated a few weeks ago, his rising back from the dead. But here we are early in the week, and if you look in verse 11, the text says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So picture this triumphant entry, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it's late in the evening, and Jesus' disciples go to the temple, and we'll talk more about the temple in a moment, but the temple was extravagant. The temple was magnificent. The temple was supposed to impress everyone who could see it about how great it was and how much money it would take to build it. And so Jesus comes, and he's supposed to be impressed, and he looks around the temple, and we're going to get a, a glimpse in just a moment into what he's thinking. And it's almost like he's inspecting the temple. And he decides that he's not going to do anything that night because it's late. But you can tell, right, there's sort of the um, undertones developing that Jesus has a plan that is forming. So the next morning, um, they're coming from Bethany into Jerusalem, and, and Jesus was hungry. Now, it's an important thing to stop for just a moment and note that Jesus is hungry. Pretty much all heresy, right, all heterodox religion, all cults and things like that, they almost always invariably begin with getting the Trinity wrong. Our God is one nature in three persons, right? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. A one nature, three persons distinct forever and ever and ever. And Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And if we focus on, well, he's man at expense to his God, we've got a problem. And if we focus on he's God at expense to his humanity, we've got another problem. And so we have to hold these truths together, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And being fully man, he's hungry, He's not different from you and I. He felt the pangs of hunger, and so he's hungry. What follows in verse 13 is perhaps the most controversial miracle when you read commentaries and listen to Bible teachers talk, because it's not like the other miracles. It's a negative miracle, if you will. This isn't a miracle that's bringing something. It's a miracle that is destroying something. Jesus sees a fig tree. The text says that he sees a fig tree in leaf. Now, I know nothing naturally about fig trees in Jerusalem and Bethany and Palestine and Israel and all of the. I know nothing about agriculture. Um, we've been doing some um, landscaping around our house, 
and it made it abundantly clear just how little I know about any sort of agriculture. So if I don't know anything about West Virginia land, I know nothing about the land in the ancient Near East. But the text tells us that there was um, a fig tree in leaf. Now, when the tree is in leaf, that means there's already been some fruit that's been born on the tree. Because in fig leaves, or fig trees in Jerusalem and Bethany and the whole surrounding area, the leaves would follow these little fruits that would be um, sort of born in the tree. Now, the text goes on to say, it was not the season for figs, right? He came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So, in other words, the figs aren't going to be fully developed. It's not the season where they're ripe and they're harvesting them and you can go to market and everyone's eating figs. But there is some fruit that's supposed to be on the tree. And the reason we know, and a first century reader wouldn't even stumble over this because they understand this, but they would see that because there are leaves on the tree, there should be some fruit on the tree. Though it wouldn't be the full-blown figs, it would be these little um, smaller fruits that come and grow into the fig. So Jesus sees a fig tree, it's in leaf, and he's going to go and see if he can find anything to eat to relieve his hunger on it. But it's empty. It's barren. There are no fruits on the tree. And he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. I just picture his disciples, right? It's like, it's is he talking to the tree, <laughs> right? It's like this kind of odd moment of, of, of them walking and says the disciples heard him. And so they see Jesus, who's hungry, and maybe they're hungry too, and he walks over to this fig tree. They see the leaves together, so there should be something he can get from the fig tree. He walks over there, and there's, there's, no, there's no, no, no food on it, and he's like, um, may no one ever eat from you again. And the disciples saw it. They heard it, and they've got to be thinking, why is Jesus talking to a tree, and some liberal scholars who I don't think get this text right at all say that this makes Jesus look petty. They say that this makes Jesus look irrational. They say that this makes Jesus look short-tempered. And none of that can be the case. And we'll see in just a moment why that's certainly not the case. Because what's happening here is a parable, but it's an enacted parable. It's an embodied parable. Jesus is doing something that he's going to explain in just a moment. We have to remember that the fig tree is a very common Old Testament image for Israel. We see it in Jeremiah 8, in Jeremiah 29, in Hosea 9, in Joel 1, in Micah 7. Over and over again, the prophets speak to, uh, to Israel as this sort of fig tree in metaphor. I don't think we have to do any interpretive gymnastics to try to make Jesus look one way or another on this one. Because the way Mark organizes his material strongly suggests a connection between the cursing of the fig tree and what we're about to read. That the cursing of the fig tree is going to coincide with the cursing of the temple. And the fate of the fig tree is, in fact, the fate of the temple. Nestled in between two parables or two teachings about the fig tree is this triumphant, climactic moment of Jesus going into the temple. And let's look at that right now in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and check it out. He began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? 
Traditionally, in, uh, when we read the Bible, your Bible may have this as a subheading, we call this, right, Jesus cleansing the temple. But even more specifically, Jesus is condemning the temple. This is an important moment in redemptive history. Oh, the temple was huge. The temple was gorgeous. Think about some of you when you go to India on our, our partner trips, you'll see the Taj Mahal and, and how just glamorous it is and how incredible it is. And, and you come around sort of this little walkway and you look and, and right there before you is one of the, like, the seven wonders of the ancient world, right? And it's like, I never thought I'd see this. And you're just impressed by the, the marble and the craftsmanship and the splendor of it all. And the temple very much was the same sort of thing. It was meant when you see it to evoke wonder, when you see it to evoke grandeur, to think, look how powerful God is. Look how powerful, though, his people are, was a second meaning. Think about when you visit a church, right? They try to impress you with their facilities and their people, and um, people will come in and they'll, oh, man, this is great, and uh, they'll fawn over uh, what they like, or they'll be like, man, this is not good at all, and they won't like it, and they'll leave. But Jesus is walking into a temple, and it is an experience very much designed for a, wow, this is awesome. But Jesus walks in the temple, and he doesn't see what everyone else sees. Jesus walks in the temple, and he isn't impressed at all. Verse 15 says, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Just for some context, right, whenever you would come to the temple, Man, the, the statistics about how many people would come to the temple was astonishing. Every year around the Passover, people would come from all over the world or all over the known world at the time to, to worship in the temple. And I think someone, uh, some scholar wrote that over 220,000 lambs were sold in the sort of economic activity of the temple. Because what you would do is you would come from your home, wherever you're from, you'd bring with you some lambs, you'd bring with you some um, birds, some salt, um, some oils, some different things for offering a sacrifice. You'd bring that stuff with you. You'd also bring with you a half a shekel temple tax. So imagine being a family from a village outside of Jerusalem, and you're coming to the temple for worship, and let's say you're a sort of lower-income family, and so there is Old Testament law that says, hey, if a family can't afford to provide this or that, they can bring pigeons. And so you're a poor family from outside Jerusalem, and you, you, you get a couple of pigeons, which for everyone else would be no big deal. It'd be like going to the you know, gas station and, and buying a candy bar, but for you, it's a pr pretty big deal. And so you've got your half a shekel temple tax for everyone in your family, You've got your uh, pigeons, your doves, and you're coming to, to sacrifice them. And you get to the temple, and you meet somebody there. And that person is a sort of, um, I don't know, we could call them the temple mafia, right? And the temple mafia is going to make sure that your sacrifice is good enough for God. Let me see that lamb you brought. Oh, I, I know you think this lamb was without blemish, but this lamb is really, it's, it's not good. If you sacrifice this, surely God won't hear your prayers. Let's, I tell you what, I will sell you another lamb. See how this would work. You would bring a pigeon. They would say, oh, I know you spent more money than you ought to on this pigeon, but it's really not, not up to par. And you do want God to accept the sacrifice, right? You do want God to forgive your sins, right? Well, then what you'll do is you'll buy this from us. 
And then you got, oh, what about my temple tax? And you take your, your, your half a shekel out of your, I guess you wouldn't have a pocket back then, but your bag, right? You, you take your half a shekel temple tax, and, but here's the problem. You don't live in Jerusalem, so your currency is different from everyone else's there. And if you've ever been a tourist in a big city, what do they do to tourists in big cities? They upcharge you on the currency exchange. And so they come to Jerusalem, and they're standing there, there in the temple, and um, I, just, I, just, I just have this currency. Oh, we don't accept that currency. But I tell you what, I'll, let me just exchange it for you. After all, I am a man of God, right? I wouldn't lie or cheat. No one would ever, ever do that around here. And they would upcharge. And some scholars say they would upcharge upwards of 30, 40, 50%. So just imagine, you're coming to the temple for worship. You're coming to the temple because God has commanded that as part of worship. You're bringing your sacrifices. You're bringing your temple tax. But as you're going, you're getting bombarded by people who are taking advantage of you. You're getting bombarded by people who are trying to make a buck off of you. And what had happened was that there was this elaborate system that had taken up the entire 35-acre Gentilian court. There was only one part of the temple where Gentiles could come. A Gentile is just someone like me or you who's not Jewish. There was one 35-acre gate where they could come. And this 35-acre gate was where all the economic activity was happening. But it wasn't good economic activity. They were cheating people. They were taking advantage of people. And so Jesus comes, and he sees the radical corruption. He sees this mafia who has complete control over the temple. He sees these people who are not concerned about worship. They're not thinking about God. They're thinking about themselves. He sees the wealthy exploiting the poor. He sees the religiously powerful exploiting the religiously not powerful. He sees a mess, and he's going to do something about it. And what we see here is an incredible episode of righteous indignation, of righteous anger. Instead of the king of Israel coming to attack Rome, the king of righteousness has come to attack the temple. He starts throwing guys out. And I just, I picture this in my head. And it's one of those things that just kind of rubs against the image of Jesus that you think about when you think of sort of your um, nighttime storybook Jesus, right? You think this warm, fuzzy, like Gandhi-type figure who just wants everyone to be happy and everything to be peaceful and no one to ever have conflict and it to be all hunky-dory and we think that's what he wants for our lives. But here Jesus comes onto the scene and sees this injustice and he's angry. What kind of God sees injustice and doesn't care? What kind of God would see injustice and not be angry at injustice? And so I just picture what in the world are the disciples doing right here, Right? I mean, Jesus is it's flipping tables over, and 35 acres worth of people, and the text says he's driving them out. I mean, he might be picking guys up by their collars and making them leave, and he's saying, listen, you have made what's meant to be a house of prayer for all nations into a den of thieves and robbers. Your worship is supposed to be about God, but here worship is all about you. Jesus cleans house, and at least for a moment restores the purpose of the temple as a place of worship for all people. There was sort of a populist vibe, a very strong populist vibe in Jerusalem at this day, and there were a lot of Jews who believed that the Messiah would come, the son of David would come, and he would remove all the Gentiles from the temple. And that right now they had to bear with Gentiles coming to the Gentile court to worship their God. And they didn't like those people very much. And so they would come and they say, well, one day someone will come and they'll, he'll take all the outsiders and he'll, he'll turn them away. But here's the great paradox. Here's the great irony underneath that. 
Jesus came not to remove the Gentiles from temple worship, but Jesus came to bring them in. Because the gate that was in the temple, right, for people who were outsiders to come in and meet God was being blocked by presumptuous insiders. Does that not sound like some temptations we have in our church today? Are we tempted to forget that God's heart beats for the lost and that we are the sheep of his pasture and that we are called to to, to bring people who are not yet in the fold into the fold? The Gentiles couldn't use the temple gate for what it was meant to be for because God's people were too busy making a buck off of it. How easily we forget that God desires and deserves the authentic worship of all people. Their selfishness is antithetical to God's plan of salvation. Their selfishness is antithetical to God's plan of salvation. And we just have to ask ourselves in these moments, does my selfishness ever get in the way of God's plan of salvation? Does my selfishness ever take center stage in my life? Certainly when we look at church history, we, like the Jews of the temple of that day, are, tended, are, are sort of tempted to look inwardly. Some 1,500 years later, uh, a monk by the name of Martin Luther wrote to Pope Leo X on September 6, 1520. He said this, The Roman church, once the holiest of all, has become the most licentious den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the kingdom of sin, death, and hell. It is so, this is the best part of his quote. And that a monk writing this to the Pope. It is so bad that even Antichrist himself, if he should come, could think of nothing to add to its wickedness. Martin Luther is telling the Pope, our church, and at this point he would say our church, our church has gotten so corrupt, our church has gotten so selfish, that if the Antichrist himself walked into this church, he would look around and say, it's about as bad as it can get. There's nothing I can do to make these people even more sinful. There's nothing I can do to make this church worse. Church, I remind us, wherever Jesus finds evil, he will decisively deal with it. Wherever Jesus finds evil, he will decisively deal with it. Even if we would be so presumptuous to think, We are God's people, and we can do to others whatever we want to do. Two questions I want you to ask yourself. Do I remember that worship is about God and not about me? Do I remember that worship, I mean that in the gathered sense on Sunday morning, but more broadly, I mean that in the sense of my life as an act of worship to God. Do I remember that it's about Him and not about me? I believe often we can think that it's about us when our, uh, you know, we'll come to Jesus. I want you to, I'm going to do what you say, but just so I can get the result, right? Just so I can get the peace, just so I can get the happiness, just so I can get the joy and the security. Well, one day while you're following Jesus, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to be super happy one day, right? You're not going to be super secure one day. You're not going to have a whole lot of joy on some days. 
And in those moments, are you going to say, Jesus, I didn't sign up for this. I was so obedient to you. And I, I did this, and look at me, and I deserve so much praise. Because in that moment, what you're forgetting is that the Christian life isn't about what Jesus can do for us, but it's about what we can do for Jesus. Because of what Jesus has already done for us. The Christian life is active response to what Christ has done, that Christ has come, that Christ has lived, that Christ has died for our, our sins, and that Christ has risen, and we live in active response to that, knowing that he is worthy, and if I lose everything for following him, it's worth it. If I lose friends, if I lose sleep, if I lose comfort, it's worth it. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Do we remember that worship do we remember that the Christian life is not about me, it's about God? And that is eternally very good news for all of us. Secondly, do we remember, do we remember that God desires the worship of all people? Do we remember that God desires the worship of all people? Last week I preached a sermon about Bartimaeus. And I challenged us to be urgent in gospel proclamation. I challenge us to remember the stakes when sharing the gospel with others. Do we remember that God desires and deserves the worship of all people? Because I think in these two questions, I think this is where temple worship went wrong. Because worship was no longer about God. It was about them and their wealth and their money and their comfort and their power. And they didn't care about the outsiders. They didn't care about the people who were on the outside looking in. Finally, let's look at the final passage, verses 20 through 25. We're back to the fig tree. So they passed by in the morning, so the next day they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus as we've seen so many times, will teach in a parable. And then after he teaches in the parable, when he's with his disciples and they're all by themselves, he'll share what he meant in that parable. And here we have an enacted parable. Jesus curses the fig tree. He goes to the temple. And they're walking away and they look and they see the fig tree. And the text says it's what? Withered from the root. In essence, this passage is teaching us that the fate of the temple and the fate of the fig tree are inextricably linked. The title of today's sermon is The Fruitless Tree and the Godless Temple. As the fig tree died, so too will worship in the, simple, in the temple. And in just a few years, historically, we know that the temple would, in fact, be torn down. It will no longer be the center of God's activity in the world. And Jesus would say precarious things like, destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it back up. That the temple of God is no longer this building, but the temple of God is Christ. And Christ died for us that we might be his spiritual temple on earth, that we might be his body. And Jesus then in response teaches the, the basic stuff of religion. 
in this, faith, in this passage we see in verse 22, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Don't have faith in money. Don't have faith in power. Don't have faith in these things, but have faith in God. Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Secondly, he teaches about prayer. First, we see, have faith in God. Trust God. That there are mountains and obstacles that you will face that seem insurmountable, but knowing that God is able to, to, to surpass those, that God is able to accomplish something in those situations. Secondly, he teaches about prayer. Believe that you have received it, right? And it will be yours. Pray with confidence. Pray believing that our Father is a good Father who loves us and gives good gifts. And finally, about forgiveness. Forgive your brothers. Forgive your sisters. Be a people who extend forgiveness and are gracious. Mark follows the fig tree and temple sandwich, right, with a call to faith in Jesus, not the temple. Worship team, if you guys will uh, come on up. Uh, I have good news for us this morning. And maybe hard news for us this morning. Uh, Jesus won't tolerate fake forever. Jesus won't tolerate fake forever. And it's worth asking yourself a question, and it's worth me asking myself a question. Am I projecting an image of life where there is really spiritual death? Am I projecting that I've this great Christian? Am I projecting that I've got it all together? Am I, am I projecting that everyone should be like me when in reality I am struggling? When in reality I love things that are antithetical to the Christian faith? I want to remind you this morning that the temple is a strong warning for all of the people who are in God's family. It's no longer there. It's no longer the center of worship of God. That it had become so corrupt that it became condemned. And we're not like, we're not unlike Israel in the sense that we don't drift towards holiness, we drift towards selfishness. We don't drift towards God-centeredness. Right? We drift towards self-centeredness. And if we're not careful, if we're not disciplined in the fight, if we're not growing in Christ, then we too can become presumptuous. Then we too can forget that our lives are not about us. Our lives are about making much of God. That our worship services, they're not really about us. They're about making much of God. And that God brings life to those who the world sees as outsiders. That God is good news. He exists. He is real. He loves you. And he desires to work in your life in tangible and real ways. And that God's heart beats for those who aren't in these doors yet. And he has called us to be like that Gentile court. And I just have to ask, does sin get in the way and clutter up the court in a sense so that the outsiders can't come in? If we're not careful, if we're not seeking the Lord, we can end up 
just like those temple worshipers, as a den of thieves without knowing anything is even wrong. Jesus, our better king, is the king of righteousness who destroys false worship. In a world where there is so much pain, in a world where there is so much suffering, where people will ask, where is your God in the middle of all that? You can open your Bible and you can turn to Mark chapter 11 and you can say, right now I I don't know. I, I don't know why things happen the way they are, but let me show you how Jesus responds to injustice. Let me show you what Jesus thinks about people who oppress poor people. Let me show you what Jesus thinks about those who get presumptuous and self-centered. Let me show you what Jesus thinks about false worship. Because our God is a God who displays his holiness for the world to see. Our God is perfect. Our God is the fount of justice and goodness in the world. And we don't know why evil things happen. But the story of the temple reminds us that our king is the king of righteousness. Who will, in his time and in his way, make all things right. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you, and we're thankful for this passage of Scripture that shows your righteous anger towards sin and oppression. I pray, Lord, that we would not fall into the same snare that the Israelites fell into, the snare of selfishness, the snare of self-centeredness, But instead, Lord, I pray that we would be marked by a radical God-centeredness. That we would love you more than we love ourselves. That we would love you more than we love our traditions. That we would love you more than we love our money. And that we would remember that your desire is to bring forth a people from all nations. From the people in our office. From the people who live down the street. From the people in our dorms. From wherever they may be. You've created them. You love them. And you desire to bring them to yourself. And may we be agents of seeing that come to pass. In Christ's name we pray.